Well, good morning to you all. Our passage today is from Ephesians 5 and will be in verse 21. So please could you turn there now. I don't think it will surprise you if I say that Christianity is under attack from every quarter. The Bible is routinely dismissed as fairy tales and God as a crutch for those who are of a weak character. And it doesn't end there, of course, because Satan is far too clever to allow any facet of our faith to remain untouched. And one of these is the matter of how we relate to others. And he has not been without success. In fact, I'm betting that the topic of today's sermon is going to cause some internal conflict in a few of us right here in this building because it will bring what the world has taught us squarely up against what Scripture teaches. And we will all need to decide how we will go forward with this knowledge. Let's read our passage then, Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start in verse 15 because it all works in with where we are going today. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think it's very obvious that we're about to plunge into some very deep waters, but (laughs) not right now. I have read some distance ahead today because it's from its theme flows our specific text today. And I want you to have a taste and an idea of where we're going because it's necessary to have that in mind while we think about today's verse. But before we do that, we have to talk about where we have been. Now, in our last two sermons, we've discovered that the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a believer manifests in their outward behaviour of joyfulness and thankfulness. And why wouldn't a person be joyful and thankful when they have been saved from certain death at a very great cost to the one who saved them? 
Today we will be talking about a third signal of the, of the Spirit's work, which is submission or sometimes lowliness. So these are the three things that ought to show to anyone clear as day that we are Christians. Joyfulness, thankfulness and lowliness. Well, right off the bat, we can learn a few important things here. Well, firstly, for the genuine article, these three signs are inseparable from the Holy Spirit. Now, we all know how to put this stuff on as a show because, after all, we know what a good Christian ought to look like and we all want to look like a good Christian, don't we? Hmm. However, unless we engage and encourage the Spirit's work within us, that's all they'll be, just a show. The real thing is deep and consistent and we can tell that that is so in the same way that we can tell whether a person's smile is genuine or not because, you know, the eyes give it away. No, soaking ourselves in God's word, speaking with him in deep prayer, resting in his grace, being obedient to his commands and doing the work that he has prepared for us, these things will certainly cause us to grow strong in the spirit and build in us genuine joyfulness, thankfulness and lowliness. Secondly, if we look back over Ephesians 5, we will see that that submission to the Holy Spirit is the key to all of our moral relationships. We are encouraged to walk in love. Where does that come from? Well, Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is firstly love. Yes, love, joy, peace, patience, all that stuff. Next, we are encouraged to walk as children of light. Well, how does that show in us? The text tells us the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth. These things are reflections of the light of God and so there the Spirit is again. And then we are encouraged to walk in wisdom. What enables us to do that? Well, we are told to avoid drunkenness but instead be filled with the Spirit. It is clear that all kinds of godly attitudes have at their heart the precious person of the Holy Spirit. And that's all stuff that mostly has to do with our personal characters. But what about the way that we relate to other people around us? Well, this is where Paul is going next because we see how yielding to the Spirit is the key to all of our material relationships, what we will actually do with those attitudes within our hearts. Thirdly, although the idea of submissiveness might seem quite odd to us because of our culture's insistent message of individualism and rights and even the misunderstanding of scriptures that say we are more than conquerors, some reflection will show that it's very consistent with the models that God himself gives us. Don't we have this very picture of submission from the Trinity? Have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit refusing to do the Father's work just because he needs some me time? No, of course not. And wasn't Jesus a perfect example of submission to the Father when he lived here on earth as a man? Yes, he was. Don't we see perfect harmony and service between the partners of the Trinity? Yes, yes and yes. Well, no Christian can ever set themselves apart from the Lord in their behavior. And we've heard this recently in this very chapter which starts in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So, as God models submissiveness to us in his own person, it should be a very clear picture of what he wants us to model in the world. 
Never mind what the world wants to impose on us. Fourthly, am I allowed to make a fourth point or will the uh, three-point sermon police object? No? Fourthly, aside from what we have just learned, it shouldn't be surprising to us that submission would be important to God. I want to be very clear here though. This isn't submission of the whipped dog kind. This is both a thoughtful and reasoned positioning of ourselves and a glad yielding of the heart. And we'll go on to talk about that more just now. Submission is key to bringing order to our lives because individual action often creates chaos. Now, I don't know if you've thought much about this, but a very real-life example is our country's legal system. Now, just imagine what life would be like if every single one of us in here just did whatever we thought at any time was the, good, was the best thing for us to do. What would it be like? Would we be sitting here? It'd be chaos. We wouldn't be sitting here quietly. In fact, we probably wouldn't be here at all. It would be absolute hell. Anarchy and the strongest man wins all the time. Now, since we recognize this as a society, we have set up this system of laws to regulate our lives. We've made a rational decision. We've traded some personal freedom in favor of order because we realize that both personally and collectively we will profit much more by living in an orderly fashion. And we might like to think that this is merely the work of humanity, but actually we are just mirroring God. He is a God who loves order. And we can see that if we look at his creation around us, the way that all things live and grow and interdepend. Now for sure, (laughs) there is chaos, flood and pestilence and rats and so on, but these are some of the consequences of sin. They weren't God's intention. He intended for us to live orderly lives in an orderly world and submission to his love was always part of that plan. But sin and our love of self has made yielding to anything a deeply unpopular topic these days. And let's not pretend that this isn't a problem right here. In fact, as Kiwis, we may have a particular problem in this regard. Recently I heard it said on the radio in a discussion program that Kiwis don't like to be told what to do. And it was meant in a positive sense. Hey, you know, we're all rugged individuals here. And by observation, I'd say that's true. However, It would be a real shame for us as Christians to unwittingly allow our nationality here on earth to compromise our example as citizens of heaven. It's as simple as this. God loves order, and therefore, so too should we. Well, I'd say it's enough points as an introduction. We don't want to tempt fate by going for five points. So, let's move on to look at this particular passage in more details. To refresh our memories, it reads... Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, I habitually use the New King James Version, and it starts with this word, submitting. But there are some others that say something like, and further, you will submit to one another out of, the, out of reverence for Christ. They start with this word, and. And that might seem to be a very minor difference, but I think it does give us a better sense of how this instruction is connected to the earlier ones about thankfulness, and joyfulness, and more importantly, to the work of the Holy Spirit. I've already spoken about these three things as being visible and joint signs of the work of the Spirit in the believer, 
But now I want to demonstrate that it is scripture that brings them together, not my own or some other commentator's imagination. If I think about it, I can't really imagine the difficulties that are involved in turning the original Greek into understandable English. But it does seem that often, unfortunately, something gets lost in the way, and so it's really helpful to look at different translations to get a better picture of what the original writer meant. And here it illuminates that connection between the three attitudes of the heart. I also want to be very careful about the language that I use. I don't want to connect the term spirit-filled believer to this topic because it might suggest that there may be believers who are not spirit-filled. And so, well, they just have no reason to be joyful or thankful or submissive. Might be a bit helpful. I have some good news. The kingdom of God doesn't have any second-class citizens in it. If a person has repented of their sins and genuinely accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then at that very moment, that instant, they receive the Holy Spirit. Always. And this is the promise of Jesus himself. What will vary from person to person is the way that they express that indwelling, but that will be a function of their own personality and just where they are on that lifelong journey of sanctification. It has nothing to do with whether they are spirit-filled or otherwise. Thus, although your Bible might lack, word, like, lack that word and, I hope that you can see that there is a clear connection between the spirit and thankfulness and joyfulness and submission, and that most importantly, we will not genuinely enjoy those deep heart attitudes without the one who dwells in our heart, the Holy Spirit. They are all inescapably connected. So, with that established, I'll move on to the thorny subject of submission. Now, the Greek word that is used here stands for a complex concept, which needs to be defined by the context in which it is heard. Here, in this particular instance, there is no question of power or position, as we find when the word is used in Romans 13, which talks about being subject to governing authorities. In this text, in Ephesians, Paul's meaning is a call for all believers to develop an attitude of submission, a willingness to be responsive and to yield to one another out of love. And consequently, it is wrong to read anything of a master or slave relationship into this verse or the passages that follow. Rather, we see the development of a sensitivity to others that frees us from pride and enables us to act at all times in loving and caring ways. Now, the Greek word is hupotasso, and it comes from hupo, under, and tasso, which means to arrange in an orderly manner. And it gives a little meaning of to place under in an orderly fashion. So, parents, you can now go home and tell your kids to hupotasso their shoes under the bed. Hmm. Now, we will get to some slightly technical stuff about Greek grammar. So, please try to stay awake. I have asked some of the deacons to stand by at the back with buckets of cold water. When trying to understand what writers in Greek uh, actually meant so we can accurately translate their words into modern New English, we have to consider some things called tense, mood and voice. Well, hmm, what are they? Well, tense is easy to understand because we all already know about past, present and future tenses in English. Although Greek is a little bit harder because apparently it has seven. 
Mood tells us how the spoken idea is related to reality. For example, is the action meant as a fact or is it meant in some other manner like a command or a possibility or a wish? Well, here are some examples. The boy eats. That's an actual statement of fact. If the boy eats, that's a condition or a contingency. The boy might eat. That's a possibility. Oh, that the boy might eat. I bet you we've all said that. A wish. So, mood sort of lets us step into the, the word picture ourselves and then try to think about how we might be if we were a player in it. Now we come to voice. And this is quite a lot harder. This asks the question, how is the subject related to the action of the verb? And there are three different kinds of voice. Active, passive, and middle. Well, remember that? Active, passive, and middle. In the active voice, the subject does the acting, or the subject produces the action. For example, John hit the ball. Yay, it's a six. And then there is the passive voice, where the subject receives the action. For example, John was hit by the ball. Ow! And then lastly, we have the middle voice. Unfortunately, there is no parallel, middle, there is no parallel to the middle voice in English. And apparently it's only known in Greek and Sanskrit. And this makes it a bit hard to give you an easy explanation. But what it means is that not only does the subject act, but somehow they also participate in the result of the action. And the best way I could think about explaining this was to say it's like having your cake and eating it. Now, the only difference between the active and the middle voice is that the middle calls special attention to our example, John. In the active voice, John is merely doing something. In the middle voice, John is doing that thing in relationship to himself somehow. But exactly how that is, the middle voice doesn't say. We can only work that out from the context of the words nearby. And now it gets even more complicated because there are a whole lot of different types of middle voice. Since John can be acting on himself or for himself or yielding himself to the action of the verb. And that word yield might give you some idea of where I'm going. And there are a few other types that I won't bore you with. But understanding what these types are can help the words create a glowing picture in our minds. So happily, now we can get to the point of all this. Our friend Hupotasso is used quite a few times in the New Testament with the meaning of yielding to governance or authority. And as an example, it was often used as a military term, meaning that troop divisions were to be arranged in an orderly fashion under the command of the leader. And in this state of subordination, they were now subject to the orders of their commander. Now this kind of submission obviously isn't big on choice. Orders must lead to action. But that isn't the sense of the word here. In this case, it is in the present tense, which means that it is an action continually called for, and it goes on and on, and it is in a middle voice which calls for the subject to willingly start and then keep doing the action of putting oneself in submission to the authority of another. In other words, it's a continuous, voluntary or willing type of submission. There is no one here hanging around to punish us with a whip if we don't. So, understanding all this means that it would be nice if the kids would hoopatasso their shoes without the whip, just like it says here, but that is generally unlikely. So, you will have to use your best present passive tense voice. 
Who put tassel your shoes under the bed now, maggots? And I hope they will then oblige. So, Paul is calling us to a lifelong attitude of submission to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not for appearances, or because God will use that billion volt, bolt of lightning if we don't, but out of love. Isn't that supposed to be one of the defining marks of Christians anyway? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Yes. So how do we do that in real life? Must I go around beaming like a loon at every Christian I meet? Does it mean hugs and kisses for all? Well, I could maybe go with the hugs, but please don't kiss me if you're a brother. Of course, there are many ways of expressing love, but we have a clear view of one right here in this text. We can show our love for one another through our submission to one another. But I will say again, submission is not about status. Submission is not about inferiority. Submission is not about power. One of my favorite words in the whole world is egregious. Now, I don't get to use it very often because it isn't the sort of word that one drops into day-to-day conversation in the smoker room. Although maybe it should be because it is a friend of the word awesome and that gets used a great deal. In its simplest form, egregious just means surpassing or extraordinary. And so in its original use, it was a lot like awesome. That's like so totally egregious, bro. That's what teenagers used to say a hundred years ago. But in modern use, it is always associated with words having very bad or negative senses. So when I say that something is egregiously bad, I mean that it is really, really bad. In fact, disgustingly so. The acts of of ISIS are egregiously awful. And similarly, too, is Donald Trump's behavior and his hair. (laughs) But this is potentially very serious. There have been many acts committed within Christianity in the name of submission that are egregiously bad. Men have treated women badly. Colonizers have treated the colonized unfairly, and church leaders have misused this text to dominate and subdue their congregations. This is emphatically not what I'm preaching today. And how can we be sure of this? Well, let's go back to the book. Go to our text. It says that we should be submitting to one another. Why? In the fear of God. So, our motivation isn't at all personal. It's positional. We submit to one another because we are looking up to God, not inward to ourselves. We are seeking His glory and not our own, and we are conscious that we are all equal in His sight because we have all sinned and fallen short of His glory. Yes, it is true some of us have different roles and different talents, and these may place us either in the role of leader or follower, but at the level of the heart, the the playing field is so level that you could play billiards on it anywhere in the world. And this means that anyone who uses submission to one another as a pretext for personal gain of any kind is egregiously wrong and is sinning against the Lord. 
don't do it and don't put up with it either. Now I've actually jumped ahead a little because of the flow of thought that links submission to fear of the Lord or reverence for Christ as some translations have it. But I can't just go past the matter of one another because in as much as we are all equal in the sight of God, we are all equal in our need of one another. The Greek word that is used for one another means each other and speaks of a mutuality or sharing of thinking or feeling between two persons or groups of persons. It describes a mutual beneficial activity as each one submits to or encourages or loves the other member. Well, they both benefit. Now the thing is that we don't get to choose who we submit to. Maybe I'll have to submit to someone who sits on the other side of church. That's a pretty difficult idea to get your head around. In fact, in a cowardly moment, I almost thought about not mentioning this at all because I know that it won't sit well with everyone who hears it. I don't mean that we shouldn't be wise and cautious about the type of church we choose to belong to or that we should ever tolerate abuse of our submission by anyone in it once we are there. But we also shouldn't be submitting to one another on the basis of whether we like someone or not, other or not, or whether their clothes are odd, or maybe because of the colour of their skin. Honest submission goes with a terrible vulnerability. It means opening oneself up completely to potential abuse and hurt, and our life experience generally says that it isn't a very good idea to do with everyone we meet. So why should we even be thinking about it ever? Now you may have heard the question, funny ha-ha or funny peculiar. If you haven't, it's asking whether the subject of the conversation is amusing or on the other hand, strange. If you heard, he's such a funny fellow, you may reply, funny ha-ha or funny peculiar. Now the thing is that Christians are supposed to be funny Funny, peculiar. And that word peculiar is used in a couple of different ways. In one sense, it means belonging solely or especially to an individual. And if you happen to know the song that speaks of us being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that comes from 1 Peter 2.9, well, that's the sense that it's used in there. Christians are a peculiar people because they belong solely to God. But peculiar also means unusual, doesn't it? That dress is rather a peculiar colour, Mrs. Tastard, he said bravely. Given the most peculiar thing that has happened to us through salvation, brought about by a most peculiar saviour, Jesus, and promising a most peculiar eternity, Christians absolutely have to be spectacularly peculiar in both of its meanings. We are peculiar because Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins and thus bring us into his ownership. That isn't true for everyone in the world, is it? And because of the Holy Spirit within us bringing joyfulness, thankfulness and submission, we ought to be pretty peculiar too because that is an unusual condition amongst mankind. This peculiarity is supposed to draw attention to the goodness of belonging to God's people and the goodness of God, 
to point to the glory which he so richly deserves above any other. And this is why, although the world says we must hold back or be hurt, the Spirit says we ought to be obedient, to be thankful and joyful, and yes, to that more difficult one, submissive, because it shows that our faith is real and that it works. So, how and when will we actually be peculiar? Well, I'll specifically answer that in a while, but again, there are a few points I'd like to make first. The perspective from which we've approached the subject so far is that of being willing to be submissive. It's mostly been about openness and surrender and trust, and hopefully we're all feeling by now that it's something we ought to pay more attention to. But there are a couple of different angles to look at this from. The first of these, I think, is the ability or willingness to be served. It's slightly different from what I've been talking about so far, and that difference is a matter of the head and not the heart. It lies in the place where we are asked, how are you, and we automatically answer, fine, when we're actually not. And it's also found in that supposedly noble place where we won't look for help because we don't want to be a bother or put people out. Now for sure, we don't want to be getting people to run around us just because we can and it feels good. That is a kind of submission abuse that is just as bad as committed by those who use submission to abuse authority. But I think it's obvious that service cannot take place in a vacuum. Servers need a person to serve. I'm sure that many of you have heard the story about the man who was really down on his luck and so prayed and prayed that God would allow him to win Lotto. Frustrated that it had not happened after ferocious prayer, he cried out, Lord, why won't you answer my prayer? And a heavenly voice thundered back, When will you buy a ticket? I have said many, many times here that sanctification is a cooperative journey. God does his part, and so must we. We may be suffering in any one of a million ways and crying out to God for help. And there is almost certainly someone willing to help us. But the two will never be connected unless we submit and allow them to be our helper. When we answer, no, I'm not fine, I need X or Y or Z. If we want God to answer our prayers, then we need to buy that ticket and be willing to be served. The second angle is the responsibility of being the one who is served, the one submitted to. The potential to abuse this privilege is obvious, and many, many times people have fallen over the edge. Let's face it, personal power is a very seductive thing, and none of us can really afford to think ourselves above the possibility of taking advantage. And so we must be really respectful of the position we hold when we are on the upper end of the stick. It is so easy to do an absolutely enormous amount of damage. So watch yourself. Pray for and listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. Be open and accountable to fellow believers if possible. And that's all I will say on this topic for now. Now, it might seem, as you look at your watch and hope for the end of the sermon, that this would be a good time and that hopeful signal for the end if I would begin to discuss some more practical stuff about submission. 
I did say I would, but I didn't actually specify when I'd do the how to do section that all good sermons finish with. Bad news here. Based on that measure, this can't be a good sermon because I'm not going to do that today because a great deal of Ephesians deals with just that topic. And so I'm not going to jump the gun. But we did need the perspective of this sermon before we got to some rather difficult topics. And that's exactly why the Holy Spirit put this here in our Bibles. So, Lord willing, look forward to next month's exciting installment on husbands and wives. I suspect it may be quite challenging. The good news is that if you've been watching pages, this is the end of the sermon. I know that you found the explanation of tense mood and voice to be absolutely riveting, and you would love to hear another hour of the same, but I'm sorry, I can't oblige. My Sunday lunch beckons. But let me leave you with this challenge. This matter of submission is God's way of connecting his people in a very special way. When it works properly as God intends it, it benefits the receiver, it grows the provider, it strengthens the body of the church, it is a testimony to the unsaved, and it glorifies the Lord. Each and every one of us in this room today has the, has the possibility this day, if not within the next five minutes, to do one or all of these things. The question is, will we step out in faith and obedience, and yes, maybe some fear because we might become vulnerable during the process, or are we just going to carry on as we are? I do pray not. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenge to grow. Thank you for reminding us that we can't be standing still. And thank you most of all for giving us such clear instruction on how we might grow and how we might move. In this case, about submission. Lord, I pray that we would submit to you and to the instruction in your word, and that we would begin to act on what we have heard, that we might be your light in this world, and your call to repent and follow Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.